Good morning. It is certainly a pleasure to be here with you this morning to share from the Word of God. If we can take just a moment to bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Our text for this morning is found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to be working our way through that text. And as I was in preparation for this morning, I went through a couple of different ideas of how I could introduce the text, what would be a good way to think about this, the ideas that we have to look at this morning. And I thought of little children playing follow the leader. And I never really, even when I was little, I never understood the purpose of that game. I I didn't understand. But being a boy, I wanted to win. And so when I was the leader, I would try to do things that nobody else behind me was going to be able to do. I tried to make it impossible for them to follow the leader. And then I also thought about road trips. We've taken many road trips in our family and, we've, and we caravan, we follow, we bring family members with us, we have two, three cars, and we're headed down to Florida. And there's one car who's supposed to be the lead car so that we can all stay together. And I remember one time being in the lead car, and my brother-in-law has a lead foot. He was in the car behind us. He followed well for a little while. And then I see him in the passing lane next to us waving, and then he's gone. And he's gone. He doesn't understand speed limits. He's on his way. And I'm not following at that speed. I'm not doing it. I refuse. So I figure we'll catch him sometime later. And he does. Slow down. Calls us on the phone. Tells us where he's going. And as we think about this idea of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, it's about following. And it's about following well. And it's about taking our cue from the leader. Last week, Milo spoke to us about when Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. And we see that in 1621. Jesus had called these people to follow him and they were content to follow him up to a certain point, really right up to this moment. Peter is the only one who speaks up. And he objects, and he says, not so, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. But it's a safe bet that all of the rest of the disciples and followers that heard him were thinking the same things. See, a Roman cross didn't fit into their expectations for Jesus. They foresaw a throne for him in Jerusalem, not a cross. And then when they objected to this, Jesus doubled down on what he said, and he said, not only is there a cross for me, but you are going to follow me, and there are crosses for you as well. This was shocking for them, that Jesus would not only be rejected and slain, but that that rejection, death, loss, leading to resurrection, are what is at the center of what it means to follow him. Some background and context can help us to understand how the disciples felt when faced with this teaching. About 500 years before Christ came on the scene, 
the last of the nation of Israel went into exile. And so for over 500 years, up till the time of Christ, the Jewish nation has been captive to other nations. Kingdoms came and kingdoms went, and Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and the place of the temple where God's voice spoke and where the people met with God, it was captive to foreigners. And during that time of captivity, all of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets that we're familiar with, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, all of these prophets, they prophesied that a coming king would come and restore the kingdom of David and sit on his throne. And so during that time, the people started to look in expectation for this coming Messiah who would restore the kingdom of David, kick out the foreigners, reestablish Israel in all of its glory, like what they had during the time of Solomon. The popular expectation for Messiah was that he would overthrow, especially in Jesus' time, was that he would overthrow the Roman Empire, kick the Romans out, and set up a throne in Jerusalem. This is the social and religious context into which Jesus comes. The main point here is that this expectation of a politically powerful Messiah was almost universal. And these expectations would have shaped the expectations of Jesus' disciples. You see, in chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, which, which were a couple weeks ago, Peter had just confessed that Jesus is, he just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied with powerful and triumphant statement about the future of his church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That was very moving. It's very powerful. And it's very much in keeping with their expectations for the Messiah. <clears throat> the history and culture of that people gave them ready-made expectations for who the Lord Jesus Christ would be. But as we have been seeing through this whole series, and as we see, we're going to see this week, these expectations were wrong. And I want to point out something very quickly for us. Let's drive this home. Here in the United States of America, our history and our culture have given us built-in expectations for who Jesus Christ should be and for what our relationship with him should be like. We have lived in 200 plus years of prosperity and growth and dominance and power. And where else would you rather live in all of the earth than in the United States of America? Maybe we expect Jesus to be comfortable. Maybe we expect him to be respectable. Maybe we expect him to be safe or tolerant or convenient. A Jesus who much, who stays in his lane, and who generally just makes our lives better. That's a very American Jesus. And just like the Jews of Jesus' time, we tend to remake Jesus into our own image. But Jesus never really cared much for our preferences, and he didn't care much for theirs. So in 1621, we see that he strikes an altogether different tone. 
when from that time Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And we see how Peter responded to that announcement. And if I can summarize and paraphrase somewhat, when Peter objected to that, it's the same objection that we would have today. Who wants to carry a cross? Who wants to suffer? Who wants to die? It just doesn't sit well with us. We have a natural disinclination. We don't prefer it. It's not nice. But we'll see that in 1621 what he says is from that time on, Jesus began to explain. It's a shift in the Gospel of Matthew, a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Because up until this point, he hadn't really talked about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Namely, that he was going to die for the sins of the world. But from this point on, he's going to speak frequently of this fact. As the disciples are able to hear it. Before we get to the end of chapter 17, Jesus is going to mention his death one more time. And the idea of the cross is going to come up one more time. And we're going to see throughout the book as you study it, that he, it comes back to it again and again and again. In summary of our introduction here, Peter professed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, I am. But within about a year, I am going to die in Jerusalem, and you must die a death like mine. Obviously, the disciples didn't like that teaching any more than you or I would. Because times may change, but people are the same. Peter and the other apostles, like all of their other Jews of their time, were looking for political savior. And when, they, and when they found Jesus, they thought they hit the jackpot. They were in the inner circle. They were early adopters. They got on right away. They followed him, yes, but they were also jockeying for position, arguing about who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. And they all thought that the fullness of the kingdom of God was only weeks away. They were ready for a holy war to drive out the Romans. The apostles saw themselves on thrones within the year, not Jesus on a cross within a year. And all of a sudden Jesus reigned on their parade and he told them and he began to tell them and he continually told them that a cross was coming for them. And they were like, wait, what? What? A cross? And so our text picks up right here. It's been only six days since he dropped this body shall on them. This is where our text picks up the story. So the remainder of this message, I want to split the text into three sections. Three movements that I think I found in the text here. We see them as they go up the mountain in verse 1. Then some pretty fantastic things happen on the mountain in verses 2 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 13, they have a debriefing time as they come down the mountain. So let's hit this in three sections. Up the mountain, on the mountain, and then down the mountain. In verse 1, we see this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Luke adds that the point was for them to pray up there. That's what they went to do. By this time, Peter may have recovered from the shock of being called Satan just six days ago. But I'm sure the idea of rejection, death, and loss was still very much on his mind. And the transfiguration was by invitation only. 
We see the crowds following him all through the gospel, but here he says, no, just Peter, James, and John. And Peter's the one who pulled Jesus aside because we assume, and I think that we're right when we assume so, that Peter was the unofficial leader of the disciples. You remember they were always arguing about who was the greatest. I think Peter won most of the time. He was a tough guy. He was a person who could speak and handle himself. And James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee, who were nicknamed by Jesus the sons of thunder. These three that were invited were like Jesus' inner circle. And we see them singled out quite often. They were like the leadership core, the core team for Jesus. And that was part of his ministry model. And so he invites just his inner circle up the mountain to pray. And I want to point out something here that the text in Matthew doesn't point out, that they point out in the, in the uh, text in Luke, where he talks about the same event. That while Jesus was praying, the disciples dozed off. Seems like a, a pattern for them. Jesus is praying, and they're sleeping. They were heavy with sleep. They dozed off. So when the next events occur on the mountain, they have to wake up to see them. And the events that happen on the mountain, beginning in verses 2 through 8, we can summarize as a fuller revelation of the glory of Christ. And we're going to see that in three events that happen on the mountain. In the transfiguration itself, in the conversation that he has with the Old Testament saints, and in the witness of God the Father. Three events that happen on the mountain. A fuller revelation of the glory of Christ. So let's treat them one at a time and talk about how each shows us a fuller revelation of the glory of Christ. The first one, the transfiguration. The transfiguration, it says this, that he was transfigured before them in verse 2. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. What is going on here? Is this something new? Jesus hadn't glowed up to this point. They could look at him. They walked and talked with him. I would argue, if you'll allow me to use this, he looked just like you and me. Normal. Hands, feet, toes, ears. Just like you and me. And now he's glowing like, like the sun. He's bright. He's shining. They can't look at him. What's changed? Is there something new going on? I'm going to argue that there's not something new going on here. Except that what was usually hidden is now being seen. In John 17, Jesus prayed, I pray that they might behold my glory, the glory that I had with you before the world began. And it says of the Father, it says of God, that he dwells in inapproachable light. And John, later on, when he was writing his gospel in chapter 1, he would say, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we still believe these things today. Don't we sing at Christmas time, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Behold incarnate deity. What was that light? That light is the glory of God himself. And we see it in the man, Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Moses in the Old Testament went up on the mountain and communed with God and he came down from the mountain? What was going on with his face? It was glowing. People were so creeped out he had to wear a veil over his face. 
Because God is light, and in him dwells no darkness at all. This is not a new attribute that is suddenly given to Christ, but a revelation of an attribute that he always had that was hidden, as it were, behind a curtain, behind a veil, which theologians call the veil of his flesh. This was a visual aid, if you will, allow me to use the term a visual aid, that allowed us to see exactly what Peter was saying when he said, you are the Son of God. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the Son of God, check it out. Take a look and see. So we have the transfiguration where the glory of God is shown in the face of Christ. And then we have a conversation that happens with two Old Testament saints. In verse 3 it says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now Moses and Elijah, it's interesting that these two individuals are the ones that Moses, who was the giver of the law, and Elijah, who we can take as representative of the Old Testament prophets. And so I, I, I don't think I'm stretching it too far to say here that Jesus is talking with the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets are having a conversation with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And what are Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? Again, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke does. They're talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They're talking about what they were just talking about down on the bottom of the mountain. He's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. They're talking about the same thing. Moses and Elijah have a vested interest in what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem. It's a personal issue for them because he needs to go and die for their sins. And they wrote about him and they talked about him in all of the Old Testament scriptures. This is the point of all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that Christ has come to die for us. Moses told them in his writings that the Lord would raise up a prophet like unto himself from among their brethren and that they should listen to that prophet. That prophet was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. His name is Jesus. All of the prophets, all of what they wrote about a conquering king who would come and sit on the throne of David, he's there on the Mount of Transfiguration. His name is Jesus. Remember what Philip said when he called Nathaniel? When he called Nathaniel right at the beginning of the gospel and, and, and Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, he says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you remember after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, when he meets the two men on the road and he scolds them, what does he say? He says, oh foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the law and the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The point here is that Moses and Elijah appear and they are servants and they are subservient to Christ. Someone greater than Moses was there. Someone greater than Elijah was there. And that would have been hard for the Jews to grasp. Someone greater than Moses. Someone greater than Elijah. 
When we picture the scene on that mountain, we know that Jesus is the center of attention. He is the main attraction. And the Father is about to interject and say that this is so. But before we look carefully at the cloud and the voice, let's consider that Peter, as he comes awake from sleep, he can't help himself, he interrupts. What led him to do that? Why did Peter interrupt? Jesus was having a conversation. He interrupted their conversation. As they awaken and they see Jesus shining with the brightness of the sun, showing the glory of his nature, he is the Lord God Almighty, dwelling in unapproachable light. Peter, in shock, who should be speechless, manages to find something to say anyway. And what Peter speaks here without thinking very carefully. But I think we could try to uncover what motivated Peter and what it was that motivated him to suggest building tabernacles on the mountain. Now a tabernacle was a tent. It was a temporary place of meeting. Israel, when they lived in the wilderness, they lived in tabernacles, wandering in the wilderness. And the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, condescended to live in a tabernacle with them. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And the ancient Jews celebrated, and many Jews still celebrate, the feast of Sukkot, where they celebrate that time of wandering in the wilderness and remember God's provision in the wilderness, and they build temporary shelters in which to live and in which to pray. My point is that the idea of tabernacles was and is a very Jewish idea. It was a part of their Jewish heritage. And so we see Peter in his shock and awe defaulting to his very comfortable Jewish religion. What he wanted was for the top of that mountain to become a recognized center of Jewish worship. He wanted that to become a place where people could come up the mountain and gather and commune with Jesus and with Moses and with Elijah. What they saw on that mountain was certainly more in keeping with their ideas and hopes and aspirations for Messiah than a cross. Give us the mountaintop any day. Show us the glory. Let us stay right here, especially if it means we can avoid all this talk about death. I think that they were beginning to realize that this idea of the cross wasn't going away. It would be inescapable. And then the father comes down with an eruption of his own. The text says that while he was still speaking, Peter gets interrupted. We could almost frame this in a, in a series of interruptions. Peter interrupts, and then the cloud comes and interrupts. A bright cloud in verse 5 envelops them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that before somewhere? It seems like we heard this maybe when Jesus was baptized. At the beginning of his ministry. When he came up out of the water and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Why does the father say this again so much later in Jesus' ministry? We're probably two years in to his ministry. 
Well, what has been going on in Jesus' ministry? Jesus dropped a bomb on these guys, remember? A cross for me and crosses for you. Peter's objection and the strong rebuke that Peter receives, it's going to put some strain on their group. I would almost frame it in terms of a leadership crisis. Who are we going to follow? Jesus' message just became a little unpopular. All of a sudden, we don't want to do what he's about to do. We're reacting strongly to this. There will be no thrones for them in Jerusalem, at least not yet. But there would be rejection, death, and loss. Now pause for a moment with me, if you will, and let's put ourselves in their shoes. For us, a cross is a very remote thing. Nobody dies by crucifixion anymore. For them, crosses were immediate. The Roman government regularly crucified people publicly. They had probably seen one. And we know enough with our modern science and technology today to know that it was horrible. It was horrible. If I were to say to you, follow me, and we're all going to end up in prison or in the gas chamber or in the electric chair or in front of a firing squad, you would begin to think whether it was a very good idea to follow me or not. See, the disciples needed some good reason to keep following Jesus. And the transfiguration fits that bill. See, the more we fully behold the glory of Christ, the more fully we will be motivated and empowered to follow him wherever he leads us. And Jesus is about to lead them down the mountain to Jerusalem, not to drive out Rome or set up thrones. Peter would have wanted to stay here on top of the mountain, but that wasn't an option. The father said, listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Can I draw out two points of application right here in the middle before we come down the mountain? Let's stay on the mountain. Let's dwell here for a minute. And let's consider two things that seem like opposites in our minds. The glory of Christ, God in the flesh, speaking with Moses and Elijah, the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy. This whole book, it's about him. And he's standing on that mountain, transfigured before them in all of his glory. And the cloud, the, the Shekinah glory of God himself descends upon them and says, this is my son, listen to him. Let's dwell there for a minute and consider how heavily the shadow of the cross lays on this place. Many followers of Jesus stumbled at the message of the cross of Christ. They were fine with following Jesus as long as they thought they could gain some advantage from belonging to his circle. And his ministry initially took off. It exploded. Thousands of people were following him. As they saw his miracles and they heard him teaching that the poor and that the disenfranchised and all of the lowly of the earth are going, to have, are going to be exalted in his kingdom. They were like, yes, that's me. Let's get to the exaltation. Let's do this. But as time went on and the kingdom they were waiting for didn't appear and Jesus is teaching toward, towards rejection and he started to talk about suffering and other hard topics, these followers began to peel off. And as the crowds quit Jesus, he asked his closest disciples, will you also go away? 
And Peter, it's always Peter. He says, where else will we go? He says something good this time. He says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. So that is my question for us today. So it's a question, this question goes primarily to those here who have not heeded, who have not chosen to follow Christ yet. Here's a question for you. If you reject the call of Christ to take up a cross and follow him, where else will you go? I have explained for us today that Christ was not just another teacher. He was not just another religious leader. He is the Son of God. He is the voice of God. He is the full authority of God. And it is God who says, listen to Jesus. You may reject this, but where else will you go? Who or what will you follow? To what will you give your life? Although it is doubtful and the odds are against you, you might find happiness. You might find security in this world somewhere. Yet even if you can find it, if you refuse to follow Jesus, you will lose your soul. Jesus himself said, if you do not believe that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. What we need most is not power, position, comforts, pleasure, or fame. What we need most is the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. And only Jesus offers that through his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. What does it profit us if we gain the whole world but we lose our soul? And what would we trade for our souls? The ultimatum that Jesus gives us is just like this. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world and everything in it will finally be burned up. We sung that this morning. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. It's going to be burned up. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be gone. And anybody who stakes their claim here will be burned up with it. Nobody's getting out of here alive. Our only hope is in the life to come. And Jesus Christ invites us to follow him to his death, not to just stay dead, but so that we can also follow him into his resurrection. He invites us to join him in a death like his so that we can join him in a resurrection like his. We're not masochists. We're not just looking for pain and loss and suffering. But I dare say that we have a respect for the reward. I dare say there is nowhere else to turn. Jesus is the only way. And up on that mountain, he was putting the proof in the pudding. He's saying, yes, I'm telling you this is a hard thing to take up your cross and follow me. But look at, remind yourselves of who I am that is telling you to do this. And you can trust me with this. You can trust Jesus with this. Yes, the cross of Christ and our imitation of him as disciples is central to our faith. I carefully, I want to I repeat something. I want to carefully say this, that the cross that we carry is not the same as the cross that Christ carries. Christ carries a cross and he dies for the sins of the whole world. What we do is we imitate him in a death and a dying that is like his. I'm talking about taking up our cross and follow him right now as we address this text on the transfiguration because 
That's what this text is about. You see, we are going to be motivated and empowered for the mission of taking up our cross and following Jesus when we rightly behold the glory of Christ. When we remember who it is that's in the lead, who's taking up a cross before us. In the transfiguration, right up against these texts about the cross and seeing that Elijah and Moses are talking about the cross, and when we look at him, them coming down the mountain, in, verses, in verse 11, he says, They have done unto Elijah everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The cross runs a thread through this whole text. The transfiguration is not a standalone thing over here. Both are together. The kingdom of God comes to us through death and suffering leading to resurrection. The two are inseparable. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The thought of carrying a cross when it's properly understood is disorienting and it's shocking. It's impossible for me this morning to cover all of the different ways in which this applies to our lives. It's impossible. The cross of Christ is foundational. It's revolutionary. It should change the way we think about everything. I think the point of the transfiguration is to show us that the cross is God's way of establishing his kingdom. The Father reendorses the message of Christ. And didn't Paul say, through many hardships we must enter the kingdom of God? And he told Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he said, Jesus himself, in the world you will have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. Because when we properly perceive who Christ is, God in the flesh, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the perfect representative of the Father, who by his death has overcome the world, putting away our sins by his blood, we are motivated and empowered to listen to him and to follow him wherever he may lead. Followers of Jesus have already counted the cost and like Paul, we have determined that everything in this world, whatever this world offers us, whatever comfort or pleasure or good thing, that it's like dung compared to the knowing Christ, comparing to have fellowship with Jesus. For those of you that don't know, my wife and I are getting ready to go plant a church, Fieldstone Church in Clarence. And I've worked the past 15 years as a correction officer for the state of New York. I'm going from corrections to ministry. It's a big change. It's really a big change. I'm leaving a job where I had some job security. We always used to joke about the job security. There's always going to be prisoners and criminals, so there's always going to be work for correction officers. We used to joke about this. Pardon us for our correction officer humor. But it had become a comfortable place for me. As uncomfortable as it was, it became a place at least that I was used to. I've been doing it for 15 years. I go in there and it's like I never left. I just went to visit the other day. It was like I never left. Nice income. Nice pension. Good benefits. Paid time off. Paid time off where I don't have to work. On my vacation, I can just forget about work. 
for a couple weeks and be paid. A lot of perks. A lot of comfort. I'm only 15 years into a 25-year pension. We're giving up a lot. And I'm not saying that to exalt myself or to say, hey, look at us. But what I'm saying is this, that Kelly and I have been following Jesus for years and we believe that he is worth whatever sacrifice he calls us to make. Whether it's time, energy, money, possessions, liberties, reputations. You know, following Christ is always going to cost us something. Always. Faithfully following Christ is always going to bring some kind of loss. But we follow him because it doesn't matter what we lose in this life. Or what we may have to give up or go without. The reward is Christ. The reward is his resurrection glory. So when Christ began to lead us to Fieldstone, and it became obvious that we would have to give up my state job with the good pay and the generous pension and all that comes with it, when Jesus began to hint to us that we might give these things up, we had to ask ourselves, where else will we go? Who else will we follow? His way is the way to life. The road of sacrifice for Christ and for his kingdom is the way to life. There's no other way. And he's calling all of us, all of you, to a similar sacrifice. To give until it hurts. To say no to our desires and wants and needs when all of the worldly logic and common sense entices us to indulge and to remain and to be comfortable. But Christ calls us to sacrifice. There were, there, it's interesting how my, the news was received among other correction officers. It's interesting because most people are miserable in that job. Most of them are. And most of them are like, good for you, get out while you can. But there was one guy who said, you're throwing away your pension? How much are they going to pay you? And I have to be honest with you, folks. I've thought about that more than once. But where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to follow? Now, Christ has not called my wife and I to the place of the skull, to a Roman cross, or even to prison, or even to any of the various sufferings that are endured by our brothers and sisters all over the world. Our brothers and sisters in other countries, they could share with us a little bit of what it means to follow Christ. We have no idea what suffering is, what loss is. Oh no, the people at work don't like me anymore. They're going to prison. We have been called to Clarence. And Clarence doesn't seem so bad in respect to those things. So to Clarence we go with the full intention of giving our lives there for the glory of Christ and for the good of the Clarence communities. We go there to live a death like his, where all of our time and energy and resources will be leveraged for his kingdom and his glory because we consider him worthy. Didn't we just sing that this morning? Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who has conquered the grave. Do you consider him worthy? The sacrifice that he calls us to is not far off. The rejection and suffering and loss that he calls us to is not far off. The sacrifice he requires is right here and right now in our backyards, in our workplaces, in our homes, and in our communities. 
I know that here at Randall you draw circles. We all have circles in which we move. And those circles are our place to die. To pour ourselves out to the end that we might find Christ's glory and the good of the people to which he has called us. Christ is worthy of this service and of this sacrifice. He is worthy of our allegiance and our obedience. He has purchased us at a high cost. So let us eagerly pursue new ways to serve him with good works until the day we see him face to face. Let's press in. Let's press on. Let's drive this home. Think about where you live. Do you love your neighbors? Do they know that you are a disciple of Christ? What have you done to serve them and love them well? Look around you here. Do you know your church family? Do you know their struggles and their needs? Have you sacrificed for them? As we wrap this up, reflect with me. If the cross of Christ, which encompasses rejection, suffering, loss, and death, if these things are so central and definitive of our Christian discipleship, how much attention do we really give to these ideas? Or do we, like Peter, want to stay in a comfortable place? How much do we think about the fact that our lives are supposed to be marked by rejection, death, and loss? How much do our prayers ask for this full identification with Christ? Like Paul prayed, to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings for us and for our loved ones. Isn't it true that most of our prayers... We find ourselves that they're aimed toward getting rid of the negative at any cost. Rather than to endure the loss and pain with the right attitude and with the right perspective. See, we're infiltrated by the world and its attitudes rather than by the perspective of the kingdom of God and the cross of Christ. When we choose... To die to self for the love of Jesus, resurrection is guaranteed to follow, both in this life and the one to come. The conclusion of the matter, coming down the mountain. After the cloud ascended to, to whence it came, and the cowering disciples opened their eyes again, they looked up and saw only Jesus, his glory hidden once again, the normal Jesus that they had already known for years. And then as the Lord led them down the mountain, he told them to keep secret what they had just seen, until after his resurrection. Jesus didn't want word of this coming out just yet. It was only for them. Why? The days were coming soon where they would need the strength of that vision to sustain their faith. Once they get to Jerusalem, it will not look like they're winning. It will not look like Jesus is triumphing. Jesus will not look like a savior or a conqueror, though he is and was all those things. And when we carry our crosses, whatever they may be, if we lose our jobs, our family, our friends, our reputations, our financial security, or our free time, it's not going to look like the world's definition of success or victory. We will need to remember the full glory of our God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to recall the mountaintop moments when Jesus was so near 
and so glorious. I hope that this morning was one of those moments for you. Consider Jesus, our wonderful counselor. Jesus, who is almighty God, our prince of peace. The king of kings and lord of lords, carrying a Roman cross for you and for me. And we will find strength to carry our crosses because he was strong enough to carry his. If you'll join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, for our good and for your glory, let the message of the cross of Christ penetrate deep into our minds and hearts. Do not let us escape it. We pray that the idols of, of pleasure and of leisure and whatever it is, Lord God, that grabs at us, whatever wisdom of the world has infiltrated our hearts and minds, set us free. Pry these idols from our grip and let us follow faithfully Christ where he leads and to give him the glory. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and to him every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and we look forward to that day. And let us hear, we pray in Jesus' name, let us hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask these things for Jesus' sake and for your glory. Amen.